0: welcome to the mama bear apologetics podcast
1: a podcast where we teach you to roar like a mother
0: and by roar we mean recognize the message offer
1: discernment argue for a healthier approach and reinforce these ideas with your kids unless you want to growl around your house i mean that's cool too (laughs) you're like check it we keep it (laughs) reels that's so bad you're awesome
0: Mama Bear Apologetics is a listener-supported program, so if you like what we do, head on over to the Mama Bear Apologetics website and click support.
1: It's time to rise up, ladies.
0: Rise up, Mama Bears. This might not affect your faith, but it might affect your children's. So we've got some good news and bad news. So the good news is that Amy got a nicer mic, so if you haven't been able to hear her quite as well in the past, that should be changed. Um, However, the bad news,
1: Amy, would you like to tell them the bad news about this particular episode? Okay, so this particular episode is special. It's going to sound a bit like I'm in a submarine because when you have a mic, you can't have it backwards or else it it won't pick up your voice as well. So I had for the entire (laughs) podcast, I had the microphone backwards. So it sounds like I'm in a sub, a tin can. So I apologize. Yep. Well, we're going to roll with it. It'll just be one episode and then the rest of it. She's going to sound
0: fabulous. So Without further ado, here is part two on the Richard Dawkins book. Yay! Welcome to another episode of Mama Bear Apologetics. I'm Hillary. And I'm Amy. And so today we are continuing in our Dawkins series where we're looking at his new book, Outgrowing God, and seeing uh, what are some of the things that he's talking about and how as we, uh, we as Mama Bears, how can we talk about these things just between us and with our kids what are some things that he's saying that maybe have a point? What are some things that he says that are just blatantly false? We're not going to go straight into chapter one, because I feel like we did enough kind of preview of chapter one last week. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm going to kind of um, talk a little bit about what we did last week. And, and mainly, we're going to be introducing a lot of things called logical fallacies in this series, which a logical falla Amy, how would you describe a logical fallacy?
1: It's just like it sounds. It's faulty reasoning. It can sound really convincing at first, but once you start looking at it, it's the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. There's a a flaw in getting from point A to point B. And so that's what we're going to be looking at and sort of exposing as we go through Dawkins' book.
0: Yep. So one of the big ones that I want to discuss is the steamroller tactic, which I wrote. If you go onto the Mama Bear Apologetics blog, you'll see kind of my review of Dawkins' book. And it's uh, how Dawkins outgrowing God is capitalizing on our culture's inability to think well. It's just because I think people are hearing all these, I'll I'll put arguments and kind of scare quotes, because a lot of them are just statements, not arguments. But one of the tactics that he uses is something called the steamroller tactic. And this is something that's usually referred to in formal debates. It's actually considered, I think, a formal debate fallacy, where you list too much. And some people like to, you know, say, oh, it's where you have so much evidence, the person can't begin to refute it. It's that's kind of what we're talking about. It's more like you present so much. It's either evidence or it's just statements that sound like evidence. So it's not always even presenting evidence. It's just stating your opinion about so many different areas that the person can't even begin to address all of them. We are absolutely seeing that happen in this book because as you and I were sitting here preparing, it's like every five minutes, we're like, well, that could be its own podcast. Well, that could be its own podcast. So we are going to do our best to address kind of all these, I don't know, what would you call them, like rabbit
1: trails? It is because it's, it's almost once you start looking at one issue, he'll launch into another one. And yes, it's hard to keep everything put together because as, as you know, you know, if you've got kids, a question's really fast, but the answer takes a lot longer. And he definitely capitalizes on the fact that, well, if I can just hit him with enough things, you know, it's going to take too long to look everything up. So they're kind of just going to cry uncle and sort of give up and come over to the skeptic side of things.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he gives enough statements or enough questions that would take basically an entire podcast, if not more. I mean, I say that even laughingly, because there's like whole volumes written on some of these things, uh, oh refuting gosh, it. And I'm whole like, semester oh semester yeah.
1: long classes that you can take <laughs> on just one of these issues.
0: I know. I'm like, eh, we can do it in a podcast. That sounds kind of full of ourselves. But it at minimum, it would take a whole podcast to, to address them. So we're going to try to just at least get to the point where you can understand. We don't have to give all the evidence for why some of these statements are false, but if it, we can at least give one or two to where you're like, nah, that's that's not true. It's like even if there's these one or two things are the only evidence we have, at least we can't believe his statements. So I think you know sometimes being overloaded with all the different ways to refute something feels just extra burden on your shoulders. It's like oh goody, there's more things I'm supposed to memorize, and between what my burpings and soccer practice, like. That's just not realistic a lot of times.
1: And that's the whole purpose of the steamroller tack. It's just to, it's just to overwhelm you. So yeah, we're not gonna be able to hit on everything, but we're going to pick out a few things and you know give sort of a flyover of them. Yeah. And
0: so we'll try not to overwhelm you as well. But so we're not gonna go super deep into chapter one, because I think we kind of touched it enough during the intro podcast. So I'll just give kind of a brief summary the main points that he had is because there are a lot of gods, we can't possibly know which one is true. That would be, I would, would you say that's kind of like a crux of his argument in chapter one?
1: Yeah, that was a main focus on it. The the purpose of chapter one, it seemed to be is let me just infuse as much doubt as possible. And so that was kind of his big one uh, that he kept bouncing back to is that you just can't know. So you might as well be agnostic
0: we want to just point out for that one is he never encourages people to look for the evidence between the different gods. Like, it, this is under the assumption that there's the same amount of evidence for Thor as there is for Christ, which just is patently false. Secondly, he has an assumption that people stay in the religion in which they were raised because he said, you know, I came to the realization that if I had been, where'd he say, if
1: I'd been raised in, uh... If I had been raised by Viking parents, I would have believed in Thor.
0: Yeah, Odin and Thor. But... I have to think of—I can't remember. Amy, did you did you
1: start out an atheist? No. Well, I we didn't really go to church a whole lot. I had kind of I had accepted Christ for a little bit, you know, and then in my teen years I went through a whole Wiccan phase, and then about a year later I came back. So it's one of those to where we didn't really have a huge religious upbringing as a kid. I ended up coming to faith for a time, falling away for a time, and then end up going back. But it wasn't really a it wasn't really because I was raised in it. It was more of investigating and God just kept pecking at the back of my head, so to speak. <laughs> and so it's one of those to where it wasn't really a nurture thing. It was more of an investigative. So I guess that when you, I do know
0: plenty of people. There's a, a girl who's, I think her mother-in-law is going to my Bible study right now. And she was in one of the other classes that John and I used to teach, but she she grew up atheist and, and didn't become a Christian until she was much later, and we have actually a lot of apologists who have this same story. The pastor I had growing up had this story. Jay Warner Wallace is like a second generation atheist until he started deciding, "Hey, I'm going to look, I'm going to read these New Testament documents and see how dumb they are." And then he's like, "Oh, wow, these really seem these fit the criteria for eyewitness testimony," which he would know because he's a, also a second case or second generation cold case detective. Then you have Lee Strobel, who was very resistant to Christianity, you have C.S. Lewis, who describes himself as the most reluctant convert who ever was. So this idea that people only stay with the religion they're raised on, raised in, yes, that can be true, but everybody I know has stories of people raised in Islam that, that came to Jesus, or people who were raised in Christian homes that decided they wanted to become Buddhists, or people, I mean, if you look at the growing church in China. That alone should be telling, I mean, that's not coming out of this is a cultural thing that people are raised in. This is so countercultural that the government is actively, I think I saw something about they just demolished probably one of the big mega churches in China. They are actively seeking to try to get Christianity out of China so that this idea that people Stick with what they're raised in, I just don't think is true.
1: Well, and Dawkins doesn't even stick with it. He says that he was raised Anglican. And by his argument, then he should be an Anglican right now. I know. He shouldn't even be in existence. But here (laughs) it is. So poor guy, he doesn't quite match up to what he's claiming.
0: Yeah, yeah. So he describes different gods. He describes polytheism, monotheism, theism, deism. I'll give like a brief overview. So polytheism is the belief in multiple gods. This would be something like uh, the Greek mythology. They believed in multiple gods. Or it could deal with something like, uh, oh, golly, over in India. Why am I drawing a blank?
1: Uh, Hinduism. Curry? Hinduism. <laughs> oh.
0: <laughs> uh, that's, okay. Yes. No. I'm oh, swear. you're talking about no, that's, uh,
1: Krishna.
0: Uh, yeah. But well, just Hinduism in general is is very polytheistic. Lots of multiple gods. Then we've got monotheism, the idea of one god, which that would be the Abrahamic religions. That would be Christianity. Actually, it's kind of odd. We've got the Abrahamic religions and Zoroastrianism, (laughs) I think, are the monotheistic ones, saying that there is one God, although Muslims claim that Christians are polytheistic because of the Trinity, which he actually goes into in this chapter, and he obviously doesn't understand what the Trinity is, and so he just kind of dismisses it as, ah, they're just trying to shoehorn polytheism into monotheism, and it's like, you know what, if you don't
1: understand it, just say you don't understand it. Yeah, it goes back to that doubt, just trying to kind of misrepresent things or present them in a way just to cause you to wonder. Exactly.
0: And so one of the things that he kind of gets stuck on is this idea that religion can be proven or disproven. And I know that this is something that we talk about in the Mama Bear Apologetics book of what is it possible to prove or disprove? So when I was getting my master's in biology, and we were in the class where we were learning how to write for journals one of the things that they said is never use the word prove or disprove. You always use the word support or this implies or, you know, it's, it was always a much softer sell because you really can't prove anything outside of math and logic. And there's even some, some old uh, philosophers that would disagree with that. But math and logic, those are like the things that you can prove. And everything else is just supported by evidence. So, already he's kind of setting us up for this impossible standard of that something has to be proven, and it has to be proven by the scientific method. And if it's not proven by the scientific method, or as we see in chapter two, archaeology, then I can't believe it.
1: That's really interesting, because with him coming from a scientific background, you would think that he would be more inclined to use the more support, that sort of thing. But he is very staunch in the fact that it has to be proven or disproven. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah. And so, th- I think it's that kind of fundamentalist thinking that people think of the word fundamentalist, and they immediately put that into a religious category. But this dogma, this dogmatic personality can really appear anywhere, even within atheism, to where they're even kind of doing bad science because they don't understand the concept of, no, we can't prove this. We can only support this with evidence. And there's there's kind of a difference between there. You got to look at all the major fields of study in in, in scholarship and realize that some of the major players in almost every single field differ on where they think the evidence leads. And that's kind of the purpose of scholarship is so that we can hash through some of these differences. The idea that there's this monolithic kind of belief in every single field uh, what they would like to call the scientific consensus. When there truly is scientific consensus, nobody actually talks about scientific consensus. People only talk about scientific consensus when there's disagreement. So anyway, but that's a whole other rabbit trail there. Going into chapter two, I'm going to introduce one of the new logical fallacies. So last time, I think some of the logical fallacies we talked about was analogy as evidence, which is kind of similar to the one we're going to do today. We talked about poisoning the well, the steamroller tactic, assumption as fact. Actually, several of those aren't formal fallacies, but they were just kind of things we noticed. The no true Scotsman we noticed. Actually, that one pops up in the chapter today. So, but the argument from false analogy, I think, comes up in this one, mainly when we get to the the part that's talking about how oral tradition occurs. So, we're not quite there yet. But first off, let's talk about the idea of proof. What constitutes proof? And we read the Hume quote last week about basically, if you can't test on it, then commit it to the flames for it's nothing but sophistry. And you're like, you mean including the statement that you just said? <laughs> Nobody wants their claims r- applied to their own statements.
1: Yeah, proof is one of those things that you see constantly under attack when it comes to uh, Bible issues because there's this tendency toward uh, materialistic naturalism. Only proof that you can see, that you can touch, that, like we mentioned last week, you can put in a beaker. That's what constitutes as proof. But that's not a good way of looking at evidence or even filtering through evidence, is if you. Especially really- not historical evidence. No, no, especially not. Because we we don't have as much as we would say, you know, something that occurred last week. We've got video surveillance, we've got newspaper reports, that sort of thing. They obviously didn't have GoPros in the biblical era. So you <laughs> don't have wonderful first person view that you can find on YouTube videos or police dash cams, that sort of thing. And so there's kind of this bias and you do see that throughout Dawkins' book is that he doesn't well, he does, but he doesn't necessarily come out in points and says that the only proof is that which can be tested. But you do see that throughout there is that the only thing that, that works is anything that supports naturalism. And so anything supernatural, you got to toss it out.
0: Yeah. So this level of skepticism isn't usually applied to other historical documents. So we've got, I think the ones that we listed here were like the writings of Herodotus and Thucydides, which appear about 500 years after the events. And so here here's the statement that I want to kind of Cry, I cry foul. That's what I was looking for. Uh, is Dawkins says, when the only evidence for an event or person wasn't written down until decades or centuries after the death of any witnesses, historians get suspicious. No, no, <laughs> no, they get no, no. excited. If they find anything from the ancient Near East, yeah, they get excited. So I want to read a passage from this book called... Questioning the Bible Level 11 major challenges to the Bible's authority. It was written by an old professor of mine, Jonathan Morrow, uh, forward by J.P. Moreland, excellent thinker. But I want to point out this chart that's on page 96 and 97. And it was funny because it took us so long to find this chart because you and I have both seen it so many places. But for some reason, we couldn't find it today. But anyway, here, here's here's something these are the most well-attested and the most considered verifiable authors from the ancient Near East. So we've got Herodotus, Thucydides, Plato, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing some of these right, Livy, Livy, Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Elder, Homer's Iliad, and then the New Testament Greeks. So let's talk about this statement that Dawkins had that says, when the only evidence for an event or person wasn't written down until decades or centuries after the death of any witnesses, historians get suspicious. Okay, so let's let's look at some of the, and these aren't just random groups that I'm talking about here from the ancient Near East. These are the most well attested. These are like second place to the Bible, which we're about to see. So let's let's take the most uh, well who's the most well recognized one on that list? Would
1: you say that every single like Homer's Iliad? I mean, that one just sticks out. Like everybody has to read that in high school, so I think they're all acquainted with it. I was going to say Plato, just because
0: like every single philosophy student, like I mean, it's even it's even integrated into our language of talking about platonic this and platonic that. It was written. The earliest copy that we have of Plato's stuff is thirteen hundred years after it was originally written. Homer's Iliad was, fo- you know, if that's going to be your second place there, that was 400 years. And actually, that's actually in second place out of, no, Thucydides is second place. Homer's Iliad is 400 years after the original was written. All these other ones, you know, Herodotus, that's 1350 years. Uh, Tacitus, 800 years. Suetonius, 800 years. And then we have the whopping, and, and actually this, this number I think has changed uh, since this book was published that we have. 35 years. So we're looking at
1: decades. I mean, this is huge because Dawkins is very big into not only knowing, having very early sources, like they have to be written the day after, better yet, you know, (laughs) the day of the occurrence. And yet you have these who are written hundreds of years later. And then as it's pointed out in J. Warner Wallace's book, is this need for the chain of command of knowing how these documents were handled, how they were transcribed. And yet, when we look at things like Herodotus, you know, it's not only 500 years later, but we have no way of knowing what the 13, original 50 years authorships later. were, yeah, what the original autographs were, how it was translated and what language, because Dawkins does, he's like, oh, well, it was changed from you know everyone from aramaic to greek and so there's problems there and yet we don't see this level of skepticism applied to these other documents as we do the scripture no
0: we don't and in fact there's some certain things that are actually within the bible that they've been able to recognize that have like i think in 1st um, corinthians 15 is one of the earliest known creeds that had to have originated within Within a couple years of Jesus's death, it became so widely known that people would recognize it as a trustworthy saying. And so that is kind of where we start getting into the oral oral tradition here, but the way that they memorize things and kind of had a, a lilt and a cadence to them in order to help them remember all sorts of oral oral traditions. So anyway, I think that we can absolutely say that if there's a lot of time between, you know, of course, historians would prefer to have less time, but the idea that they immediately become suspicious, that's just patently false. That's that's what they expect, is to have a lot of time between when it was written and when they find the first copies. That's the expectation. It's not like, oh, man, what a bummer. This, you know, I'm not sure if we can verify it. They they are jumping, they're jumping up and down when they find anything, really. So, another thing I would just mention on that is is they also compare the number of ancient manuscripts. So, let's go through some of these. Herodotus, they have 109, Thucydides, 95. Plato, 219. Livy, 150. Tacitus, 31. Suetonius, 300. Pliny the Elder, 350. Homer's Iliad, 2300. That one's like the most, you know, the biggest one. And then again, this book, I'm not sure what the, let me see what the, it was written 2014. We've gotten even more than this. The New Testament, and this is just in the Greek, 5,756. The idea that the evidence for the Bible is just kind of hanging on by a thread, it's like, ah, Have you really looked at this? And I don't think he is.
1: So, another assumption that Dawkins has is that if there isn't any archaeological evidence, then it didn't happen. Which every time I I hear that or or read that in his book, it just kind of makes me laugh. I think of Homer Simpson, who For one episode, he just closes his eyes as he's barreling down the road, chanting, If I can't see it, it's not illegal. (laughs) And uh, this, it's just not how archaeology is done. There are a lot of things that we have that don't, that have not been archaeologically verified yet, and some things that we just now have discoveries for. So it's not like these things suddenly popped into existence whenever a seal or a fossil has been discovered. It's been around there. So it's just, it's too high of a skeptical standard to have.
0: Well, beyond that, it he takes documents outside the realm, like any kind of inscription or documents outside the realm of historical or not historical archaeological evidence. I'm like, all these documents that we have with recorded writing are archaeological evidence. It's yeah, there's like historical details that you want to verify, but that there is a lot of that. I mean, like uh, he goes off for a while on Abraham about how there's no evidence for Abraham. There actually is, it's like we know where the city of Ur is. I think my dad sent me several texts. To, here, I'll read the the ones that he sent. That we have some stuff from Josephus, Jewish historian, and that is talking about Abram, which someone might say, well, that doesn't count because he was, you know, a Jewish historian. But I would like to read some of his writings where it talks about some other people that were actually mentioning Abram. So a guy named Barosus. I'm not sure if that's how to pronounce it. It's B-E-R-O-S-S-U-S. It says, mentions our father Abram without naming him when he says, in the 10th generation after the flood, there was among the Chaldeans a man righteous and great and skillful in the celestial sciences. So, you know, I could agree, you know, really that could have been anyone. But he goes on with another guy and with another great name that I'm not sure how to pronounce. I think it's Hecateus. It's H-E-C-A-T-A-E-U-S. It says Hecadius does more than barely mention him, for he composed and left behind him a book concerning him. And Nicholas of Damascus in the fourth book of his history says thus, Abram reigned at Damascus being a foreigner who came with an army out of the land above Babylon called the land of the Chaldeans. But after a long time, he got up and removed from that country also with his people and went into the land then called the land of Canaan, but now the land of Judea. And this, when his posterity were becoming a multitude, we relate their history in other work. Now, the name of Abram is even still famous in the country of Damascus, and there is still shown a village named from him, the Habitations of Abram. So this was a guy, so this would be Hecadius, that Josephus is quoting as saying that that Abram existed. So the amount of effort that Dawkins goes into saying there's absolutely no evidence that Abram, Abram or Abraham, if you know your old Testament, his original name was Abram and God changed his name to Abraham. The saying that he never existed, that leaves out this, the the idea that we found where the city of Ur is. We know where the Chaldeans were. We have these other documents. So he just kind of throws out something that's patently false saying that we have no evidence
1: for it and then moves on. One thing I love too just within that description, it says that, you know, he was proficient in celestial sciences. One thing you see in Dawkins' book is he always is constantly degrading people. Well, they can't transmit history, oral history. It's always getting mixed up and everything. And here we have just this summary of some of his skills. And we see that he was an educated man. And it's, I just think that's really neat about how we, we just get this confirmation that, you know, people in ancient history weren't dumb. They can build pyramids, they can study science, you know. <laughs>
0: Well, I think back to, you know, the 2012 where they had the, the Mayan calendar ending and people were losing their minds thinking, yes. oh, the world's going to end. It's like, well, this is amazing that this people who lived thousands of years ago was able to track, I can't, I can't remember exactly, it was like able to track and tell you exactly where Venus was going to be in the year 2012, you know, thousands of years later, yet they're not smart enough to actually remember oral history. Let's just think about the ways that we've changed in terms of directions. For example, so when I was uh, when I was younger, before I could drive or maybe like right around when I could drive, we used something called a Mapsco. Do you remember those? You might be too young. No,
1: I, I use MapQuest.
0: OK, so this was even before the Internet. Mapsco was this thing where it's like it was divided up into all these squares and uh, It was like numbers at the top and letters on the side. And so you'd find where your street was and you're like, okay, I'm on E37 sounds like bingo, (laughs) but it's battleship uh, or battleship. Yeah, exactly. And you'd find where that is. And then you would track where you're going towards the other person's house. And sometimes you had to flip over all these different things. And if you really wanted to have it printed out, you would just copy the certain pages and paste them together. That was the old school way. Then, then came along map quest. And now we can't get anywhere basically without our, our little Google maps. And you think of it, then. You, let's look back at that. This old civilization. Not only could they track where they were going, you know, across the seas and stuff, but they knew exactly what Venus was going to do in three thousand years. Yeah, most impressive. So this idea that they're this subpar cultures is, is just ridiculous. It's just we have more knowledge now, but man, I think they they I would say they were probably smarter than
1: we are. Oh my goodness, absolutely! And it's so funny because you almost see this sort of. Intellectual decline fairly recently. Uh, I remember as a kid, I was reading Little House on the Prairie, and, and they would have this competition with the students where they get in the front of the room and they would ask them these crazy division problems and everything. And the kids would pop out with the answers. And me here just not doing well with math. I was so impressed. And and then even later, you know, if if you're a night out there, you'll remember in Mansfield Park, uh, when Fanny first went. And met her cousins. Her cousins were like eight, and they were in shock because she didn't know where the Bay of Biscay was, and all her French verbs. And I'm just like, I don't even know half the words that you just said. I <laughs> had to get up <laughs> and look up what is this. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Back then, even young children had were just trained in this knowledge, and and uh, yeah, we just don't see that today.
0: That that kind of deals with our with his theme of this chapter about if there aren't archaeological remains, that it must be false. Which that's, I mean really the way archaeology works is when you find something, you assume that they're telling you the truth until there's a reason for you to think differently.
1: And they don't expect to find everything, too. Yeah, they they don't. It's just an understanding that things are going to get lost, things are going to be destroyed. Only that which is going to be found is pretty much going to be the big name emperors who had their name out there who were casting their faces in iron. And even those are shockingly rare. So any discovery. And the people who
0: won the battles, because the people who lost the battles usually did not leave behind a record of that. You don't see inscriptions that are like, and then we've lost epically, we've got the biggest spanking of all time. You know, you don't see that. In the uh, ancient documents. It's only when you win you'll want to tell people, and if not, let's see if we can just kind of throw that one under the
1: rug. Well, and that was ancient Egyptian culture, if I remember correctly. Like, there was a common practice to where if things weren't going well, what you would just do is wipe out all the motifs on the stone that had been carved into the stone walls. You would basically erase history Uh, to where these things to where they knew that a generation or two later that no one would be able to know about, so at least, you know, your failings wouldn't track for very long.
0: It's like tearing out pages of your diary that are embarrassing. Yes. Next thing he kind of goes to that uh, he goes, I'm not sure how in depth he does, but you can tell that he's really hanging on to this one is what he calls Chinese whispers. And which I don't think, I don't know, I mean, maybe that's more of a thing over in Britain, but what we call that over here is the telephone game. And basically, any atheist I have ever heard talk about the Bible and oral cultures will always go back to the telephone game to the point of where it's like, really, do you really think this is how it works? So, we're going to talk a little bit about what oral culture was like. And I also want to mention an old podcast that Rebecca and I did that is, uh, it was episode 15. Are the New Testament eyewitnesses reliable, the flashbulb memory objections? So we actually go into a lot of oral culture stuff there, but we're going to go through it again just because, I don't know, repetition's helpful, I think. Again, they didn't have Google back then, and it's this idea. I remember Bart Ehrman, which we have another episode on him, getting up at, at a debate and saying something and or asking people, you know, who watched the State of the Union address or, or some some speech I think that Obama had given. And then he's like, what can you remember about what they said? Nothing. You can't remember anything. And I'm like, yeah, because no one has to. All we got to do is relook it up on YouTube. And this idea that since we I mean, let's just look at how the brain works. Have you seen the movie Pixar's Inside Out? I have. Okay. So you remember when they're like deciding which things to put into long-term memory versus short-term memory, they're like, what things is she going to need? Nope, not going to need this. And so they're like getting rid of
1: all these memories that they don't think she'll need. That's right. That's right. That's where, uh, oh, bing bong. And they fall into this sort of pit of forgetfulness. The little balls would get tossed in. And then after a time, they would just fade away. Yep. And so this idea that
0: if, uh, if you don't use it, you lose it. So, I mean, can we please all acknowledge the fact that we don't have to remember almost anything. Like it's so embarrassing all the interviews I do where I quote a verse and I'm like, yeah, I don't know where that is. It's because I don't need to remember. It's two seconds away to Google what that verse is. So in my brain, like, because I think the people that worked on Inside Out actually were following brain science of what's going on, of how we kind of take, we remove memories that are unnecessary. And so we remove memories that we know are cataloged somewhere else that we can look it up again.
1: Well, and if it wasn't anything that was shocking or important, too, it's not going to stick out in your head. I mean, that's the whole reason. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? Probably lasted so long is because you know <laughs> we brain drumped all dumped all that stuff from fifth grade, and because we don't we're not using it and we don't need it. Yeah, the,
0: the fifth graders are like, I've got a test next week on this. This is still highly pertinent information for me. So anyway, so this that's, that's probably one of the big things problems with the telephone, or I mean, with the idea of oral culture is this idea that the brains that we have now are the same as the brains that they had then and the way that our brains work now that we prioritize the same information, you know, newsflash, we don't. So just the game of telephone in general. Just in case someone just really missed out on childhood, Amy, you
1: want to kind of describe
0: the game I tell
1: us? Yes. So we did this during Girl Scouts and it was what it was. And you guys probably remember is all the the girls, we'd all sit in a circle, but you had a, a little gap in between. And the whole point was, is it would start with one person and they'd usually be given Either a silly sentence or just a regular sentence like I walked my dog yesterday and found a hot dog and you could you would have to lean over and whisper it. So you'd cup your hands around your friend's head and you would have to whisper it because you couldn't let anybody else hear and you only got to say it twice. So that was the stipulation. And then whatever the gal heard or didn't hear, she just had to transmit something. And I remember so many times the girls looking back at the other one going, what, what? And then she'd say it a second time that she'd give her this bewildered look and then be like, okay, let me just schlep something wrong to the next person. And then, of course, by the time it got to the end, it was something absolutely crazy.
0: Or if you were like me, there was that guy, Jim Childs, in our (laughs) class, they would just change it to something radical just to mess everybody up. But... I would like to point out the difference with that. Even if he did that at the end, when they say what was said, you could go back and everybody could say what it was that they transmitted and everybody could be like, okay, yeah, it was Jim that just totally jacked this one up because we were learning in community. And this idea of communal learning, we go really into that in the podcast that I mentioned about the flashbulb memory is that these memories aren't being memorized and passed on in isolation like it is in, in the telephone game where it's just one person, you whisper and you get two chances. And if you don't know, too bad, so sad. This would be closer to what you see with old men sitting around talking about some epic past that the Bears did in 1979. <laughs> All of them were had been glued to their television at that time and they will get every detail right and they will be publicly just chastised and castigated by the other men in the room if they get any of the details wrong, because they know that they need to have this this account down perfectly so that everybody can remember it accurately. And even that is a smaller version of what we see in oral culture, because um, number one, it is being done with in community. Number two, it's being done with stuff that isn't it's not just a story that they heard, it's something that they witnessed. And especially when it comes to uh, biblical accounts, this is stuff that people witness. So we're not talking about a story that someone passed on from their mother, from, or from their father, from that father, from that father. We are talking about things that people witnessed, and this is a part of their cultural identity. And if we have learned nothing from all the diversity stuff that's going on in America right now, it's that people take the idea of their cultural identity very, very seriously. And so if they are going to base their cultural identity on the accurate ability to retell their
1: history they're going to make sure to get that right. Oh, absolutely. And part of your your background, your reputation depended upon you getting right. So it's not like today how you got fake news going about the place. It was you, your authority, your reputation depended on the accurate transmission of this culture that meant something to these people. So when something is valuable, when it means something to you, when it's a fond memory or something impactful, you're going to remember it and you're going to remember it well.
0: Yeah, if there's any possible chance of a man getting punches on his man card for something he's going to make sure to get that
1: right <laughs> exactly exactly
0: we're going to move on to another just kind of you know you know offhand statement that Dawkin makes again we can't get to all of them because we've got the steamroller tactic going on here where he just makes so many statements that we're like hey we should do a podcast on all of them but this statement to me is just so why would he include this when it's so blatantly false so he says the only other historian who mentions Jesus is the Roman Tacitus. So he's literally saying the only other one who mentions Jesus is the Roman Tacitus. So we've got this series of books that started out in 1972. And luckily I've got the 1972 version. So this isn't, this isn't even new information. This is, I think 47 years old worth of information that would have been easy to, um, to dispute this. So let's talk about just a few that are in here. Cornelius Tacitus, that is the first one that they mention. Lucian of Samosata, and he's a satirist, so this would be like the uh, the Babylon Bee back then. <laughs> it says, uh, furthermore, their he's talking about Christians. Their first lawgiver persuaded them that they were all brothers one of another after they had transgressed once for all by denying the Greek gods and by worshiping the cru- crucified sophist himself and living under his laws. So, this is obviously talking about Christ, who's saying y'all are all brothers, and the guy, the sophist, you know, the person who's giving all this information was crucified, and they're all now living under his laws. So, that book is The Passing Peregrinus. So, it says, Lucian also mentions the Christian several times in his Alexander the False Prophet, sections 25 and 29. So, next one, uh, Josephus Flavius. We won't go through that one, because I think we've talked about Josephus a lot. Actually, Dawkins references Josephus. So next one's Suetonius. So this would be in AD 120. As the Jews were making constant disturbances at the investigation of Christus, he expelled them from Rome. So that's in Life of Claudius, uh, section 25.4. And we got Pliny Secondus and Pliny the Younger. So who was writing a letter to the Emperor Trajan. It says that he wondered if he should continue killing anyone who dis. He discovered to be a Christian. Wouldn't that be a great letter? So I'm curious. Should I keep killing <laughs> should these, I kill these guys? I've been um, writing emails like that. He made them curse Christ, with which a genuine Christian cannot be induced to do. So he talks about how basically you can tell the real Christians from the non Christians by trying to get them to curse Christ, and if they don't don't do it, that's the real Christian. Can you imagine like that being the litmus test right now of a real Christian? Curse Christ or we'll kill you. Okay, you pass the test. Tertullian so he talks about uh, Tiberius according in those days the Christian name made its entry way into the world so I'm just gonna skip all the rest of us there's a the whole bunch of them but Encyclopedia Britannica is the last one that they mention here so Encyclopedia Britannica isn't exactly known for cataloging conspiracy theories would that be an accurate statement yes so here is what uh, according to this you know 1972 version the most recent Encyclopedia Britannica devoted 20,000 words to describing Jesus. And here's one of the sentences. These independent accounts prove that in ancient times, even the opponents of Christianity never doubted the historicity of Jesus, which was disputed for the first time and on inadequate grounds by several authors in the end of the 18th, during the 19th, and at the beginning of the 20th centuries. So the statement by Dawkins that The only other historian who mentions Jesus is Roman Tacitus. It's like, it really doesn't take long to figure out that that is just a patently false statement. Another patently false statement. No one has the faintest idea who wrote the Gospels. No serious scholar today thinks the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses. You know, except for William Clark. William Lane Craig, he's one of the top 50 living philosophers in the world, Michael Lycona, Daniel Wallace of the Center for New Testament Manuscripts, N.T. Wright, Norman Geisler. And if we really want to look into this, there's a, there's a book that I think every mama bear needs to have in her, in her possession, which is Cold Case Christianity, which literally tracks the chain of evidence all the way from Jesus's life to what we have today. So there is at no point when we didn't know who was responsible for the evidence and where they got their information from. And this isn't the telephone game. This is, you know, each time they're doing this, it's being second-guessed by other people around them who have also received this information independently.
1: Well, and you really see, too, his sort of viewpoints on what qualifies a, a legitimate scholar. Per his definition, it's, it's anyone that denies Jesus. So you only ah, count yes. as a scholar as long as you are on this side. And that's just not the case. So that's, that's that no true Scotsman fallacy creeping in Thank there. you.
0: I was just about to ask, what fallacy is that? That's <laughs> the called. no true Scotsman
1: fallacy. And as a Scottish
0: person, I'm offended. So. Okay. <laughs> hey, me too. I'm Scottish. Oh, yay. We can both be offended. So, I mean, he just keeps going into different things. Uh, So, one one last point that I would like to point out, and, um, well, two last points. Uh, Number one, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I had the privilege of being in Israel just a couple weeks ago and seeing the caves that they discovered the the Dead Sea Scrolls in. What we have in our current Old Testaments now, I think they have pieces of everything except for Esther. I think that's what I read. That What we have now is basically identical to what was found that had been untouched for thousands of years. I can't remember exactly how long. I don't want to overstate the case, but at least minimum 1,000 years. There's a lot of time for things to change there. And if we're going on the telephone game, you know, 1,000 years is a long time for things to change. And yet it didn't. Hmm, surprisingly. And then the thing that you and I wanted to do like a whole podcast on is the Masoretes, who are the ones that are doing the scribes. If you look, in fact, I'm going to recommend this book here, recommending lots of books today. Man, my desk is just junked up right now with us doing all this research. But there's a book called the Journey from Texts to Translations by Paul D. Wegner, And this, if you're really curious about not only how the canon came about, but how people actually transcribe scripture from one state to, or from one, one copy to another, it goes really in depth. Do you have any thoughts on that? Of oh, like yeah, how- they were
1: meticulous. I mean, it wasn't one of these things to where, okay, you know, I'm just going to write something off the top of my head, what I remember. I mean, they were going off of accounts and then painstakingly writing them uh, verbatim for words. They even incorporated math into it to where they knew how many words were supposed to be in in which column, how many columns were on the page, which word should actually fall and where it should fall within the page. So they were able to measure out on the page, okay, the word bread should be dead center of the page. And they would Yeah, look. I think they have things where it has like the the graph, it's
0: like broken up into a graph so you can actually see we put these, and so someone could, if they wanted to check their work, they'd be like, you know, look at the, you know, fourth road down, third, third word from the right. What does it say? Okay, so we got some quality control here. Yeah,
1: they would flag it. I mean, they took word count way before word count even existed. They knew every single <laughs> thing that was there, and they would mark it to where if there was a transition to where a spelling was a little off or a word was not in the right placement. They would put little dots and notes off to the side that said, hey, we need to go back Wouldn't they just to trash this. it? They were meticulous. I thought they just trashed
0: it a lot of the times. They Like if you made a mistake, you just had to trash it and you weren't allowed to, a lot of times you weren't allowed to erase because it was the word of God. But I mean, sometimes they did. You can't have that level all the time. But for the most parts, the scribes were very well educated and they were very meticulous. So I'm trying to compare that to a job Now, this would be kind of like our accountants now, who are so meticulous for every single line and and dot and everything. You have to get everything perfect in order for the accounts to match up. And that's basically how that was the process that they went through.
1: Well, and Wallace referenced that, too, with the records keeping department within the police department, because they would have to transcribe these interviews and things and then keep them on file for 30, 40, 50 years and he references in Cold Craze Christianity about how he would get the files, and then he would go talk to the detective who may have actually been on the case 20, 30 years ago, and compare it to the original notes that had been taken to the ones that he recently had copied, and just to compare for authenticity. So even now, we still have that to some degree. Yeah,
0: We have this process that goes on in in investigation, which is why I love this book, because it's written by a guy that, that was his job for 30 years. So if there's anyone who knows what constitutes evidence, how evidence is put together, when you can tell if someone's lying, when you can tell if something was fabricated, and when something was just legitimate eyewitness differences, that's the guy that would know how to do that. That's the legitimate authority that you can listen to, which I think previous podcast, we talked a little bit about the the fallacy of appeal to authority. Yeah, where it's uh, you're appealing to a false authority, but he... Jay Warner Wallace would be a very legit authority in this case when it comes to evidence, which is why I recommend everybody having that book. So so that's kind of what we have for chapters. We we gave like a little brief on chapter one, and then we went through chapters two and three of the Dawkins book. So just quick recap. You know, he said there's uh, a lot of gods, so we can't possibly know which one is true. We talked about what constitutes proof that uh, you, you have things that support, but not, you can't prove anything. We have his statements about how skeptical historians get if there's too much of a time gap in between. And we we read about some of the most common ancient Near East documents and how that's just not the case. The assumption about if there aren't archaeological remains, that that's false. And the fact that he's denying all written documents as archaeological evidence, which it is. And then a myriad of problems that come with this idea of the telephone game, that it just doesn't work, as well as a couple of statements that we were able to prove in like five seconds. These are just flat out false statements. And it's not new information. It's not new research. This is stuff that's been around for 40, 50 years, if not longer. And he is just choosing to willingly not look at any of this evidence and pretend it's not there. So he's kind of, you know, ruining any kind of credibility that he would have as a serious scholar, which in the blog that I did is I don't think he's aiming this for scholars. I think he knows that scholars are going to pick this apart. He's aiming it for people who won't take the time to look at it deeper. Yeah, he's looking for the
1: easy targets.
0: Yeah, so I hope just you as moms, uh, I, I know that this was a lot of information, you might need to listen to this one a couple times. But if you can just, it's like if someone makes an absolute statement, all you need is one piece of evidence that really shows they're not looking at the evidence. There's a lot more than what we've listed here. But if you can just give one or two to one of your kids who's asking these questions, I think that that's a great start to say, well, at least we can say that his statement there is false, and it's knowingly false. So why are we trusting the other things that he's saying? This this should raise the level. This this would not be the same thing as poisoning the well in the sense that we're saying, hey, you should doubt everything he says because I heard X Y Z about him. It's saying you should doubt everything he says because look, we have just debunked all these different things that he said and found them to be patently false. That's actually a a legitimate time when you should be skeptical about what someone says is when you have just absolutely proven their statements to be completely oblivious of any and all evidence that have
1: been out there for quite some time. Absolutely. And even taking the time to say, hey, let's grab a book or let's uh, pop open an app. Uh, All the major apologists have access to or have created these apps to where you can put in a question and it brings up resources. I think one of the best ways that we can help our kids too is teaching our kids how to research and how to dig in. We're in such a culture that's a fast food culture. We want it now. And if we can't have it now, then we either toss it aside or we don't want anything to do with it. And it's great if your kids can see you struggle and dig into books. There have been times where my kids have come home from school and I've got books all over the table and they're like, (laughs) mommy, what are you doing? You know, she's like in beast mode right now. I know. I know. (laughs) And It's funny because my husband will come in and he'll be like, so we're going out to eat for dinner. It's like, yeah, sorry, (laughs) I can't put plates out right now. But it's great for them to see you put forth that effort because then they see not only is this worth it. But that there's answers out there because, like we saw with Hillsong guy, and here is there's these claims that there isn't information, and there is there's a wealth of it. And if we can show our kids that you know it's worth the effort to put in there, we're making them those fishers of men that Jesus called us mm. to make.
0: I love that. I love the idea that it's, it's making us fishers of men. That it really is part of uh, fulfilling the great commission of going and making disciples. Because a disciple has got to be someone who is actually convinced that what they're studying is true. You can't make a disciple unless the person actually thinks that what they're following is true. And so the more that we can do to say, Hey, there's good reasons to believe this Christianity thing is true. It's not just because I get all the feels when I talk about it. Cause you know, as you know, we were praying before I was not having all the feels today or yesterday or basically anytime this weekend. There's all these times when I, I really think about just giving up because I'm like, is this worth it? all the work we put into Mama Bear, but at the same time, it is worth it because there are people out there who don't have the time to research. And I've, you know, I've at least got that, even though it kind of bums me out sometimes just, you know, because I don't get to do as much face-to-face stuff. Anyway, that's totally beside the point. As a side note, I don't normally do this, but I just want to ask if you really like what we're doing. Everybody who works with Mama Bear Apologetics does it on a volunteer basis. And we would really appreciate just if you appreciate what we're doing, just going to the website and clicking donate and maybe making a monthly gift for the work that we do on this so that I can actually pay some of the people that are working here. That would be a wonderful gift for me to be able to give to them. So anyways, Amy, would you like to close us out in prayer? Absolutely.
1: Lord, we are thankful that we are able to gather, not just in our rooms as we are recording this podcast, but we are gathering with men and women and kiddos all across the country and across the world. And we are so grateful that we live in a time and a place that we can do this. We pray, Lord, that as we are going through Dawkins's book, that we are Offering encouragement that people are encouraged to know that yes, challenges are out there, but the way that we build up immunity, the way that we become stronger, that we become wiser is by taking on these challenges and going through, studying, doing the grunt work and digging through and worshiping you with with our minds. We are called to, to train up our children and that Lamad, that train is to train with the intention of putting into use of practice. And that's what we're doing. We're not just filling up our minds for the sake of spouting off information at Sunday school to look wise and that sort of thing. We're, we're getting this information so that we can train our kids, our family members to be able to withstand these attacks, to think well. And Lord, we know that we are able to do that because you have given us wisdom. You have made us in your design, your image, Lord, so that we can worship you. And we are, we are just grateful to be able to come together and to do that. We pray for these parents as they go on for the rest of their week, that you build them up, that you give them endurance and strength to get through the night of sniffles and cries and getting off to soccer practice and everything. It can feel sometimes to be a burden to where you you have to stop and you don't feel up to maybe studying. And we just pray, Lord, that these folks are encouraged enough to be able to devote extra time to pouring into their kids' spiritual lives because they are their kids' very first witness. And Father, we just ask to be a good one. In the holy name, amen. Amen.
0: This has been a Mama Bear Apologetics recording. To learn more about Mama Bear Apologetics, please visit us on the web at
1: www.mamabearapologetics.com. We hope you learned a little more about how to sift through ideas, accept the good, reject the bad, and now you can go teach your kids to do the same. Do you have any questions or maybe some ideas about future podcast episodes? Send us an email to Bears at gmail.com and we'll do our best. Rise up, ladies. Rise up, Mama Bears. We are all in this together.
0: Like it was. Oops, now my microphone's backwards. (laughs) Okay.